Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. A wise man once said, a true history of the world is a history of great conversations in elegant rooms. Sounds like the rest is history. Those are the words of the dwarf from Game of Thrones, Tyrion Lannister, that great historian. And that's our subject this week, Game of Thrones. Tom Holland, are you a, a fan of the sex and sandals and swords hit? Uh, I, I am, and I, I'm proud to say that I was an early adopter because I... Um... I, re- I read the early books before the TV show started, and I've got to say that it was one of the great reading experiences of my life. I, wow, that's I got, a big claim. Yeah, I got, I got the first book, devoured it pretty much in a day, queued up early to get into the bookshop the next day <laughs> wow. to get the second one. I, I, I thought they were really great, and I thought they, I, I kind of quite enjoyed the TV series as well, but I thought that the, the book was was brilliant. So had you got all the way through before you started the TV series? Had you got to the as far as you could yeah, get? Yeah, I got as far as I could. Um, wow. And the other, the other link that I have with Game of Thrones is that um, I once got Sajora Mo- Mormont, um, LBW. Oh, Tom. In Glen. In Glen, yeah. I, I, I'm aware that for people who know nothing about cricket and haven't read Game of Thrones, that will mean absolutely nothing. Of all our facts, that's the most obscure. That's I the think, best, in isn't the- it? <laughs> which, which I kind of, I, I guess, kind of highlights the way in which this is um, an episode that that we risk annoying two constituencies, uh, and, and one of them obviously is <laughs> people two. who know everything about <laughs> Game of Thrones, um, because you know, I it's a while since I've watched it. I'm not absolutely on top of every last detail, but also, of course, there there may be people listening who've who've never read the books, who've never seen the TV show, maybe wondering why on a history podcast we're we're talking about a work of yes. fiction. And I think that um, the reason for doing it is focused by a question from David Haskier, who asks, how do you feel about the likely fact that the TV series has shaped popular perception about the medieval period more than um, popular his- historical TV or books? I mean, I- I'd go further and say that nothing in the 21st century has done more to shape the way that a broader range of people now think about the past than Game of Thrones. That's a bigger, more than Gladiator. I mean, Gladiator m- much huge. more, much more much more i wow. think yeah because because it was such a phenomenon and although it's fantasy it the whole thing about it is that it's rooted in kind of various historical episodes various historical periods all mixed together and i think it's a hugely influential on how and how people see the past it's in a continuum though isn't it tom i mean lord of the rings walter scott ivanhoe sort of victorian historical evocations of the middle ages i mean game of thrones isn't isn't it just the latest iteration of these ways of thinking about the medieval past. Right. Think? So I think that's that's another reason for looking at it is that it absolutely does stand in a continuum of ways that that we over the past centuries have have understood. I think yeah. I guess particularly the medieval past. But Dominic, for the for the benefit of those who have never read or seen Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, I'm here's your this. start of a tale. It's like a kind of Radio 4 panel show. <laughs> yeah. Can you give the plot of Game of Thrones in, what, a minute, two minutes? Well, I did the French Revolution in about 90 seconds, so Game, yeah, so Game of Thrones a is a bit <laughs> more complex, isn't it? So for people, so this is basically for people who haven't, haven't seen it or read it, um, because everybody else will be appalled by my gross oversimplifications, as no doubt they always are. Um, so basically, Game of Thrones, I think, is two things. One, it's a story set in the sort of uh, vaguely Middle Ages-ish 
time in this continent called Westeros, which is at the top of the near the top of the continent. There's a there's a huge wall, which is basically Hadrian's Wall, and on the other side there's these snowy wastes, and there have always been stories and rumors about some terrible menace that's going to come from you know through the snowy wastes across the wall and these are the white walkers these are kind of zombies and the show starts with the realization that basically the zombies are coming and this is looming over the whole story so that's one aspect of it so you know there's this kind of apocalyptic confrontation coming but then most of the narrative is actually about the fight for supremacy in what are called the seven kingdoms so there's the iron throne which is the sort of you know the throne obviously <laughs> and there is a series of kind of Wars of the Roses style um, shenanigans and sort of soap opera um, machinations as these different families who are clearly modeled on different families from medieval history are fighting for control. And at the beginning, you're invited. I mean, the, the, the distinctive thing about Game of Thrones, because uh, some people will be thinking, well, that doesn't sound very distinctive at all. But the distinctive thing about it, I suppose, is that at the very beginning, you're invited to empathize with one particular family from the north of the continent. Um, and it's very clear that they are going to be your sort of eyes into the, uh, into this world. And, and then the tables are turned by the end of the first book or the first series. And you realize that actually they start, a lot of them are going to start getting killed off. And you start to realize that this whole enterprise has a sensibility that you don't expect, that nothing can be taken for granted and that characters that you have invested in are going to be killed off really horribly. And and then it's sort of, there's just twist part upon twist. And yet all the time, you know, the zombies are coming, which gives it this sort of other dimension. And then, of course, there is one third dimension, um, which a lot of people loved, which is the fact that it has dragons. And dragons are these <laughs> mythical creatures that are kind of the ultimate weapon that people don't believe exist anymore. And they're going to come back and change the dynamic of the entire show and that's basically game of thrones brilliant absolutely brilliant and to, to, to fix on the dragons so i've yes. got a friend who <laughs> refuses point blank to, to have any dealings with anything that has dragons wow just not like the hobbits no no Wagner's ring all of it, yeah all of it hates it dragons for him are the absolute marker he's not going to touch it so you mentioned both zombies and dragons chinese new year that has neither dragons. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, but they're different, aren't they? I think he's talking about the medieval Western. Right, okay. Zombies and dragons immediately mark it out as the kind of thing that, that, that is not straight historical fiction. Yeah. So perhaps we could, I mean, let, let's look at both of them. So, so there's a question from Ghost of Film Past. Where did the idea of dragons originate from? And one answer to that is obviously, it, it's very clear, isn't it? It's, it's coming from med- medieval literature. Yeah. But more than older. that, it's, 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 in a way, it's an, it's showing the Middle Ages in which dragons are real is kind of true to a certain way in which medieval people did understand the world because they did think that that dragons kind of existed. So when the before the sack of Lindisfarne by the Vikings, um, fiery dragons are seen in the sky. Uh, are they in, not comets? And they're just not comets. Well, they might. That's what we would say. But in in the chronicle, it it says it's fiery dragons, and you get reports from Armenia in the early 11th century of dragons sweeping down and vomiting fire. And you get this incredible report. Where, I mean, my, one of my favourite passages in the whole of medieval literature, again, uh, early 11th century, of a monk from Regensburg crossing the Hungarian plain. And he's describing the details of his trip. You know, I saw this castle, this kind of interesting path. Oh, and then a dragon shadowed me. And he had a huge <laughs> head and he had scales like uh, like metal plates. And then he flew off. Where's this? Germany? Uh, Hungary. Hungary. Wow. 
who knew so so of course i mean we might say obviously he'd eaten something or drunk something <laughs> yeah. or whatever he, he had was too on much cheese <laughs> yes he had too much cheese but in a way one thing that is kind of i think great about game of thrones is that it it, it does import the supernatural and 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 the sensational in a way that is true to the way that, that medieval people perhaps did see the world well i suppose if you're a western medieval person um a hippopotamus a rhinoceros yeah, you know a komodo dragon they're just as fantastic yeah as a drag i mean why shouldn't a dragon fly i mean it's yeah. not well yeah. dinosaurs you know yeah. birds but but there is another way in which obviously dragons the role that they play in this series is, is incredibly modern because they are a kind of super weapon they are yes. the equivalent of 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 a, a, a bomb if a block a fleet of bombers or to, or the or the ring in the Lord of the Rings is a super weapon, isn't it? And that the, the prospect of using the ring hangs over the Lord of the Rings. I mean, this is slightly different, but isn't it the same thing that dragons? There's a fear in the show and in the books that drag the the possession of dragons will corrupt you. It's a exactly symbol of ulti, ultimate power and yes. the power of life and death over over thousands, if not millions, of people. Well, that's a tiny bit like Tolkien's ring, but it's also the way that it's very modern because it's the way that we now think of weapons of mass destruction. You know yes. the, the nuclear weapons in World War Two, for example. But also, it's it's very true to a very you know the, the circumstances of the nineties and and early years of the twenty first century when highly powerful people did use aerial power yeah. to inflict devastation on enemy cities. Well, I mean, I have a, a whole ton of theories about Game of Thrones being written in the nineteen nineties. I mean, to me, maybe we should, well, maybe we should get into this now. Yeah. Before we get to the zombies, um, since we're talking about the nineties. So George R. R. Martin starts writing this, these books in sort of the early to mid 1990s. And I've always thought, I haven't, maybe nobody, maybe people think this is mad because I haven't really seen anyone argue this, but I always think he starts writing these books at the point at which you know, the Berlin Wall has come down, the Cold War is over, the end of history has been proclaimed, and then history kind of restarts and you have these hideous civil wars in places like Yugoslavia or in the genocide in Rwanda. And you have this sense played out in the headlines for day after day that sort of top people, were <laughs> the elite, are taking decisions that have the most horrific consequences on the ground in ordinary people's villages as kind of neighbor turns on neighbor and, and sort of, you know, the sort of the small folk, as I think George R. R. Martin calls them, they pay the price for the feuds of their, of the great and the good. So Bosnia is an example of that. And, and reading what happens in his story, and this is where it differs from Tolkien, the war starts, so the war for the seven kingdoms. And instead of you seeing it purely through the eyes of the nobles, you start to see the consequences for these people in these villages. And, and I thought at the and time. That's particularly yeah, true of the novels, isn't it? Much yeah, more than, than in the Much TV more in show. the novels. Exactly. People go, you know, the, the characters travel through these sort of burned out, shattered villages that feel like something from the 30 years war or indeed the second world war. You know, everybody, people have fled. They put their possessions on carts. There's a lot of rape. There's a t tons of sexual violence, which feels very 1990s, early 21st century. Yeah. You know, something that people wouldn't have written about 50 years earlier. Right. And, and it's at precisely the point when people are writing about the Red Army's rapes when they invaded Germany in, in 1945 or something. So it feels very of the moment. And I think that roots Game of Thrones very clearly in the sort of late 20th, early yeah. 20th. It couldn't have been I, written at any previous point. And I think that's... That's true of all great recalibrations, fictional recalibrations of history. So it's true of Tolkien that he's hugely, Lord of the Rings is hugely informed by the two world wars. Scott is hugely informed by the, the, the climate in which he's writing. And yeah. obviously, Game of Thrones is as much about the 21st century as it is about whatever period 
it's set yes. in. And so um, moving on to the zombies, the the, the, the dead who, who lurk beyond the wall, we've got a question from, um, yes, Angus Colwell, who says, George R.R. R. Martin said the White Walkers, who are the zombies, were a climate change analogy. Yeah, the sense of doom. Well, so, so the, the, yeah, the, the, the recurring refrain is winter is coming. But, but in a sense, it's kind of, you know, heat is coming. <laughs> Scorching summer is coming. Summer guess, is coming doesn't analogy. quite have the same connotation. No, it does, it does. Here comes the sun. Um, so in that sense, they're, they're, they're a very contemporary allegory. But yes. at the same time, the idea of the dead rising from their grave is something that did haunt certainly the early medieval imagination. They're kind of Norse yes. legends of the Drago who, who rise from the dead. I mean, in a sense, Beowulf is kind of, you know, the monster. Tom, I, I think you can go back even further. Am I not right in saying that the epic of Gilgamesh, Ishtar, threatens yes, to yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've, yes, I think, raise I mean, I think, the dead think, from their yeah, graves or some such? Yeah, yeah. And it's in the Odyssey as well. But I think this is specifically rooted in kind of Norse, Scandinavian, Anglo-Saxon right. traditions. Yeah. So I think that's what's interesting about Game of Thrones is that it uses authentic historical material and gives it a very contemporary spin. And that's obviously what? why it's been as successful as it has, I think. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a huge element. And that's probably what a lot of fans will be expecting from our podcast, actually, that, that, I mean, people have gone through the series kind of almost blow by blow. Um, in blow by blow. I mean, you can interpret that however you like <laughs> in this Game of Thrones. Um, you go through Game of Thrones blow by blow and said, okay, this is, he's Edward the first. He's Edward the fourth. This fellow is, you know, um, this Cersei Lannister is Margaret of Anjou. Or, you know, you can do that, can't you? I mean, people have done it. Or they've gone through all the places. So the geography is quite interesting because the geography is clearly different. You know, the, a lot of it is the British Isles, but set at different points in history. Do you buy that? So it's sort of almost different time zones. Yeah, well, D Dominic, on that point, there's a question from David Spracking. Um, Game of Thrones follows familiar paths in representing the North as rough but honest, the South as sophisticated but decadent, East as barbaric and cruel, West as wild and strange. Um, are these associations with points of the compass of the compass constants in British European history? I mean, I think, yeah, th there is a kind of continental framing of it. So that, that yeah. there are echoes of, of medieval Europe. But I do think that it, one of the things that's interesting is the way that, um, British history is absolutely central in this. And the reason that, that I think that's interesting is that Martin said that his inspiration was a series of French novels set in the, the yeah. 13th, early 14th century, Les, Les Rois Maudits. Um, but when he comes to write this, he fixes on specifically British history. And I guess you could say actually English history, because as you say, the, 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 the kind of the, the prime motor of the plot is clearly based on the Wars of the Roses. Yeah. Well, Lancaster and York, Starks and Lannister, I mean, it's blatantly obvious, isn't it? The great dramatic cycle that tells the story of the Wars of the Roses is Shakespeare's history plays. And I don't think that there is any other kind of national tradition that has a great writer who has interpreted its history in quite so profound and, 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 and influential a way. So we've talked about Tolkien, we've talked about Scott, but I think the, ultimately the huge influence on this is Shakespeare. And the reason for that is that everyone who speaks English, whether you're in America, Britain, wherever, that is the influence. So when you think of the Middle Ages, you think of Shakespeare. Yeah, I suppose that's that? true. I mean, well, I think Shakespeare's, I mean, Shakespeare's obviously enormously popular in America. And so English medieval history has arrived, is understood in America often through the lens of Shakespeare. I, I also think you can't get away from Tolkien. I mean, Tolkien is the person who basically invents high fantasy, or at least popularizes it. And the idea that it has to be in the North, 
that it is a that there are always kind of Anglo-Saxon and Norse traditions at play, which is true with this, right? So in the North, in this story, the world of the Starks and Winterfell, it's very kind of Anglo-Saxon mead hall, isn't it? I mean, um, Ned Stark, who is the sort of family patriarch that you're invited to invest in, in the first book at least, uh, he's very much the sort of idealised Anglo-Saxon lord. Don't you think he's sort of feasting his I men? I do, I do. Of- and I think, again, that this is kind of what makes the world of Westeros hard to pin down, but also kind of very, very interesting question from Julian Lennox. What is the exact period of history depicted in Game of Thrones? Well, that's, It yeah, seems that's- like an easy answer, but I think it's a bit tricky. In the Reach, they seem to be in the Renaissance, but maybe it's earlier than that. In the North, are they Norman Saxons? Can we say 1300 or 1000? So I think that... Um, so there's a co- the continent of Westeros, the centre of uh, King's Landing is kind of, it's... It's London. I, it's kind I, I of London, Constantinople, Constantinople whatever. Constantinople, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So it's a mix of places. But the, the, the people who live there are basically late 15th century Tudor. Right. Yeah. Then you, you, you move northwards and you go through lands that seem to be basically 14th century. Yeah, and, they're kind of the, high medieval, the, aren't they? Hundred yeah, Years' the plot War. Lines, yeah. The plot lines coming from the Hundred Years' War. Then you go further north, so into to Winterfell, the home of the Starks. There you are in an Anglo-Saxon world. And off the coast, you have islands that are uh, clearly Viking. So they're the Ironborn, who are uh, uh, seafarers, yeah. um, clearly based on the Vikings. You go further north yet, and you come to this vast wall of ice that George R. R. Martin has said was based on Hadrian's Wall. So that's a, a Roman construction. And then you've gone really back in time because you're in Scotland. <laughs> well, you're in the Ice Age because you, yeah. you, you're in a land covered with ice. So, yeah. Okay. So I, th- I think that's kind of interesting. But also, if you, what's interesting to me, Tom, is if you look east. So he, Martin does absolutely capture something that you get in Tolkien and something that actually you get in so much Western writing about the world, you know, orientalizing writing, which is that the West is kind of plain speaking and honest and the East is sophisticated and corrupt and incredibly cruel possibly inscrutable as well. So, you know, in the East, they have these great slaver cities. They're very rich. They're very sophisticated, but they're impossibly sadistic and exotic and and all of that sort of stuff. And in a way, you know, you know, West... So the way we think about Westeros is yet to be decolonized because it's we co- see everything co- through a very <laughs> we know it's not we yeah. see everything yeah. through a very Western lens. No, I, don't we? I complete yes, I completely agree, and I think that 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 again is part of the appeal of it for lots of people is that you can't have the kind of um, dramas that that or novels that you got in the early 20th century where you have white hunters or white heroes going to remote cities king solomon's mines or tintin going to lost um uh, mayan cities or whatever and invoking um you know the knowledge of eclipses or whatever to um to, to liberate slaves from their barbaric owners which in game of thrones you can because, yeah, well, because the 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 figure you you mentioned, Daenerys Targaryen, who is the mother of dragons, who 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 comes from a long line of of kings and queens who are able to raise dragons, and that's the source of their power. Um, and she is kind of basically sold into marital slavery to um, uh, a barbarous leader of of kind of Scythians, stroke Huns, quite stroke mongols and she um becomes their queen and then uses her this army and her dragons to 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 liberate kingdoms of slaves yeah and we we, and we 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 were talking about the aztecs and the the arrival of of cortez yeah and the, the the way in which traditionally over the course of 
you know, following the conquest right the way through the 19th into the 20th century, the way that the conquest of, of um, the Aztec Empire tended to be portrayed was as a liberation of people from barbarous rulers and priests and kings who were engaging in bloody sacrifice. And that is politically no longer permissible. But it is a very dramatic story. It's a very dramatic way of presenting it. Doesn't she doesn't she crucify the slavers? Isn't, isn't she does, she, yes. And yeah. then she ends up incinerating the whole of Westeros with her dragons. So it's it is it's 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 not a, a, a kind of purely laudatory presentation of her, but she is the very essence of a white saviour. I mean her, her her hair could not be more blonde. She is. She's she's somebody going on a comet relief trip to Kilimanjaro, isn't she? <laughs> yes. <laughs> with a dragon. But it's gone horribly wrong. Um, but she's an interesting character because she's a kind of I mean, she's a pretender. Well, she's not a pretender is probably not quite the right word because she does have a very good claim to the to the throne, but she's a Jacobite figure, isn't she? Yeah, she's Bonnie Prince Charlie. <laughs> yeah, she's the queen over the water. And you're what's so interesting now, I hope we're not going to ruin this for people. Well, we are going to ruin it. But I mean, if you haven't seen the TV series by now, you're probably not going to. And the books may turn out differently, who knows? Because he obviously hasn't finished. But you know, there's this huge controversy because at the end of the books, at the end of the series, all these people who had invested in her were really disappointed because she turned evil and you know she captures the capital king's landing and she turns her dragons on the on the people and they incinerate everybody and then in the very final episode she's this almost sort of totalitarian style ruler the dragons behind her massed ranks of slave soldiers kind of doing homage to her in this sort of nuremberg rally kind of scene and everybody was very shocked all the viewers who loved her and had named their children after her and stuff, yes. so, oh god this just hasn't turned out as i expected <laughs> But I loved that. I actually thought that was very good and very true to life because it was, I mean, maybe you would think that from, you know, you say, oh, this is the essence of sort of Burkeanism, that she's destroyed all these traditions. And, and it's, she's a sort of Robespierre figure, nodding back to our, our French Revolution podcast. She's suffused with idealism, but it's turned her into this dreadful monster. And I, I thought that was actually pretty true to the logic of her character and of the show. I think both of us are in a massive minority in admiring the way that it ended. I, 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 I yeah, I, I like the way that um, uh, Line of Duty ended as well. Oh, well, that is madness. Um, well, Dominic, while we're on the subject of Daenerys Targaryen, there's a, a question from Paul Duncan. Who from history is the best comparison to Daenerys Targaryen? Did any pretenders get as massively sidetracked as she does? Uh, so... You've obviously got an answer because you wouldn't have asked it if you... <laughs> No, no, we were talking about Daenerys Targaryen. I'm thinking on the hoof here. Um, she, so she gets married off to a barbarian king. Yeah. Oh. A, a, and there was uh, a Roman empress, well, a daughter of, of, of an emperor. Theodosius I know where you're going with this. Yeah. The, uh, who, who, the last Roman emperor to rule both the east and western halves of the Roman empire. She was called Galla Placidia. And she, um, basically got captured by the Visigoths after the sack of Rome in 410. And she ends up, um, marrying the Visigothic king. So I think that's, that's a kind of interesting parallel, maybe kind of flaky. Yeah, around. I buy but, that. But, but, but Judith Heron writes about her in her book, Ravenna. That's right. Doesn't she? Yes, yeah. yes. Because she, she then, le- rather like Daenerys does, she leaves her, uh, her husband and goes back to the, the Roman centers of power and becomes a kind of great matriarchal figure. Um, but there is another figure. So we've talked about how, um, dragons basically, you know, you, you can see that there are parallels there to Western air power. And yeah. Daenerys sees herself as, uh, you know, rather anachronistically as a, a kind of great liberal liberator. She's um, really mobile force. Bringing, bringing freedom to uh, oppressed masses in far off lands. So, uh, but 
wrecking terrible havoc and destruction by doing so. So I would say, as well as Gala Placidia, perhaps there's an element in Daenerys Targaryen of Tony Blair. <laughs> Tony Blair. Oh yeah. my word! I didn't see that coming. Yeah. That's yeah. a I, Amelia Clark. I don't see her as a dead ringer for Tony Blair. I don't think she could carry that off. You well, honestly you think Daenerys Targaryen is like Tony Blair? You saw Tony's. You saw Tony's long hair recently. Actually, that's true. He it's did quite have that Targaryen look to him. <laughs> yeah, he did. I mean, it's kind of slightly ravaged. So, Targaryen. so how are you going to justify this? He's she's the third way. She, she no, um, because because um, Blair sent out lots of military missions around the world, Sierra Leone yeah. to Bosnia, Kosovo, um, yeah, Kosovo. You know, helping out oppressed peoples everywhere. Yeah, there's a statue of him, isn't there, in Kosovo? I think. And then he tries to pull the same trick in Iraq, and it all goes horribly wrong, and everything gets devastated. So, wow, that's my case. Wow, that the whole you know, story of Daenerys Targaryen is a parable back. To if you're, Blair. if the history publishing doesn't work out, I think you should write a parallel biography of Daenerys Targaryen <laughs> and Tony Blair. I think that's got. Um, I'll tell you what I think is interesting about Game of Thrones, though, Tom. And I'm surprised you haven't brought this up. I think it's the sort of the sensibility of it. So the sensibility is so different from the Lord of the Rings. And I think that's the, I mean, that's basically what a lot of people have seen this as, as a kind of, it's not quite an anti-Tolkien, but it's kind it of a- It is um, though, isn't it? It was kind of overtly, I mean, didn't- Well, Philip Pullman is the anti-Tolkien, isn't he? I mean, he's the anti- He's the anti, he's the anti-Narnia. Yes, he is. You're right. You're right. I Lewis think, I think Martin Tolkien. is the anti-Tolkien because he, he famously says, um, what was Aragorn's tax policy? And, you know, he <laughs> asks difficult questions about what happened to the baby orcs and- Yeah. You know, I mean, who cares like about Aragorn's tax policy? Does, does anyone read <laughs> The Lord of the Rings and really ask themselves about income tax in Gondor? <laughs> well, I mean, it does open an interesting point that perhaps we should come to after a break. But one of the things that um, fans of Game of Thrones often say is that um, it's much more accurate than, yeah. that, say, than, than Lord of the Rings. And it gives an accurate portrayal of what life was like, particularly in the Middle Ages. I, I could not disagree more. I, it is it is massively inaccurate as a portrayal of what, what you the Middle Ages, and I think that, that that I've you know I've gone on record. I said I absolutely love it. I'm kind of completely hooked when I was reading the books. I think there's loads about it that does hold up fascinating mirrors to to, to actual events. But I think that um, it is a you know if you have any interest in uh, in in medieval history, it's a slight problem. <laughs> the Game of Thrones now has this huge influence on how lots of people see and interpret the middle ages why what's your biggest what's your great what's your what's your big complaint what's your biggest um, should we should we come to that after the break oh is it going to be the c word yeah maybe oh ladies and gentlemen charge your glasses those people who are playing the tom holland drinking game i think he will be talking about christianity after the break i look forward to it see you in a second Welcome back to The Rest is History. Um, Tom Holland is about to embark on a discussion of the sensibility of Game of Thrones. I think he will be talking about Christianity. You have been warned. Tom, off you go. You have two hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sure Christianity will, will come up. But I think that um, talking more specifically about uh, the idea that Game of Thrones in any way gives an accurate portrayal of, of medieval yeah. life, a, a more accurate portrayal, say, than, than Lord of the Rings does, this is based on the idea that uh, medieval life was unspeakably brutal and that everyone just went around pillaging and raping all the time. Yeah. So now, nasty, brutish and short, Hobbesian. No one would deny that that it, it, it was a violent world, but it, it was not 
remotely on the scale of violence as Game of Thrones yeah. suggests. Um, and I think that, that, that on all kinds of levels, uh, Game of Thrones is essentially giving uh, an 18th century, an enlightenment idea of what the Middle mm. Ages was about. Okay. That's so for point. the enlightenment, you know, the very idea of, of a middle age between yeah. a supposed civilized age, you know, classical antiquity, when all was light and people just sat talking about philosophy. And then <laughs> 18th century, when the philosopher arrive and again, everything is returned to light and everything in between is, is, is brutish and, and violent and aggressive. Yeah, dark ages. And people just go around slaughtering each other nonstop. And, um, it's, it's all rape. I, this is, this is not true. Um, medieval civilization. I, I mean, in many ways, medieval, so just on the level of warfare, um, actually, medieval warfare was far more codified. Um, there were far more inhibitions about violence and there were far more controls on the ability of state actors to wage war than there were either in the classical period or in the early modern period. Because well, armies are smaller, right? I mean, they're, absolutely. They're, yeah. Yes. Yes. So the scale of violence that you see in Game of Thrones, that's the kind of, you know, so the storming of cities, the, the, the destruction of entire populations, that's the kind of thing the Romans went in for. It's not what by and large people in the Middle Ages did. And when you get, um, the notorious example is, um, 1099 when the first crusaders seized Jerusalem and the streets supposedly run in blood. The reason that that's remembered and, and is kind of preserved is that it was, exceptional it was the exception that proved the rule that scale of violence did not happen and the the, the vast kind of teeming armies that you get with um I- increasingly over the course of the show again this is you know you need a kind of early modern state to provide that level of violence but isn't one of the things that people think is as modern uh, isn't it so interesting that people equate being being accurate and being a sort of a properly modern portrait of the past with being very cynical very bleak and drenched in sex and violence Yes. So in other words, people say, oh, Tolkien's terribly unrealistic because people are nice to each other and some people are virtuous. And people applaud George R. R. Martin's portrait of human nature, which is unbelievably sort of downbeat. Brutal. Everybody is really horrible. Yeah. Anyone who is virtuous ends up dying, basically. Uh, everybody stabs each other in the back. And, and it's an interesting reflection on our uh, loss of trust in authority and our disenchantment with politics, that we think that is a true portrait of what medieval politics must have been like. I mean, the thing is that there were all kinds of attempts to regulate the violence inherent within you know, mailed, mailed men with horses who, by yeah. their nature, can, 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 can dominate and, and brutalise. So... Again, the eleventh the century, the period you know that we talked about in uh, in, in the episode on ten sixty six, the period that sees the emergence of castles, sees the emergence of of knights. Um, this is also the age that sees um, what's called the truce of God, where churchmen bring out relics from churches and monasteries and succeed in compelling armed warriors to essentially kind of swear oaths that they will they will not brutalize those around them. I mean. Well, of course, these oaths were broken, but it was but- assumed that that they would be obeyed and followed. And there was, you know, I've just been reading uh, over the lockdown. I was reading Chaucer, and Chaucer, of course, is always associated with with um, bawdy and people having sex and people sticking asses out of windows yeah. and kind of things like that. But on the on the knightly level, that the, the, the tales that deal with the things that knights do, 
the whole point is, is that they're not going around raping. So in the Knight's Tale, the whole thing is, is that, that you have two, two brother knights who spend years both hankering after the same lady. They do not rush out and seize her. Yeah. And even when you do get a rape, so in, in The Wife of Bath's Tale, that rape is punished. The whole dynamic of the plot revolves around his attempt to avo- avoid being executed for committing rape. So essentially, what Game of Thrones does not get is the way in which there are controlling ideologies, frameworks of morality, ethics that govern how warriors behave, certainly ethics that govern um, sexual behaviour, that are, are simply not reflected in the way that, that Game of Thrones shows it. Well, we've had tons of questions about this, actually, because people know your predilections. So Jim Longhurst asked a question about who captured the human spirit best and you know, is Westeros sort of the, the grimness without the Buddhas, Christs and saints that made the real world livable? Carolina asked the question, what did Game of Thrones misunderstand about Christianity's impact on the medieval period? So, OK, so some people say of Game of Thrones, I mean, we're sort of creating straw men here, but I mean, they do exist. Um, they say Game of Thrones is more realistic than Tolkien because it paints a medieval world in which there is a religion. There's seven gods, I think, the faith of the seven there's yeah. a there's a and there's also this really interesting kind of ref, reformation movement or this sort of evangelical movement um by a guy who's called the high sparrow and who's played by jonathan price and he's very pious and austere and he's this sort of this sort of purging flame with his acolytes and they have savonarola yes yes well, we've got a question about that somebody said is he you know david morgan they look like savonarola and his army of boys and young men now do you so savonarola uh, the um was he Florentine? Is yes, it? who the bonfire of vanities, and he summons all the uh, the Florentines to to chuck their fripperies into a great bonfire. But he basically runs Florence, doesn't he? Seven yeah. in the same way that the High Sparrow in the is clearly based on him runs King's Landing for a time and becomes the great the great sort of power. Now the question, I suppose, Tom, is: Do you think this does elevate Game of Thrones above you know its its predecessors in making it more realistic? Well, again, I, I repeat, I think it's a, it's an eighteenth century view that that religion exists solely as um, a kind of fraudulent trick played on people. So it's because none of them actually. This is interesting. None of them in Game of Thrones, I think, really believe in their religion. So they talk about the faith of the seven and they pay lip service to it, but nobody ever has these yeah. sort of inner crises where they say, "Sugar, I really am going to go to hell." This is what a, I actually genuine. You know, nobody seems to believe it other than fanatics. And even the fanatics are, you know, the kind of implication is, is that it's all about power and and control. Um, I mean, it's 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 a very it's a very modern perspective on it, a very modern take on it. And that is why I think Tolkien is is truer to the Middle Ages, because Tolkien, of course, was a very great scholar of medieval literature. And yeah. he entirely understood that. And he was also a Catholic himself. So it, it, he, he, he believed it. And the paradox is, as exactly you fixed on, that in Lord of the Rings, there are no gods, there are no priests, there is no religion, there are no temples, no equivalent of churches. Um, and yet it's saturated in a kind of theological understanding of the world that absolutely derives from um, medieval literature. Um, yeah. The, the way that medieval people would have understood the world as being divided between good and evil. Um, Game of Thrones isn't. And so the the seeming realism, I think, is not realistic a, a, at all. And particularly on, on the topic of sex, um, I mean, the sex, again, a bit like the violence, is more classical. So the... Orgies people eating grapes yeah there's, there's a real there's a real trend in um dramas about the classical world now to to show the kind of casual way in which 
you know, in a Roman household, um, slaves, for instance, would have been treated um, that that essentially their various orifices are the equivalent of a urinal. That that they are nice. they are there to be receptacles for the bodily fluids of the of the master. And, yeah. and that is something that that you do you, you see it in in HBO series Rome. It's there in the the new series that's out about um, Augustus's wife Livia Domina, which is is good. I recommend it. Um, and it's absolutely in Game of Thrones as well. But this is this is a kind of far more classical take. Um, yeah, we've got a question from um, Demetrius Bogdanthsalis. Uh, so hyped for the Game of Thrones episode. Hope it's not disappointing. Um, I would like to hear your opinion on any Roman inspiration that Martin used in his work. But the um, court is very Roman, isn't it? The, yeah, the King's it is. Landing politics. Yeah, it is. But I think um, it, it's also deeply rooted in I Claudius, as so many of oh, the yeah. kind of the great dramas of uh, of twenty first century American TV are. It's hugely, hugely influential, and there are elements of the Julia Claudian court, absolutely, to the degree that um, the guy who plays Joffrey, who is essentially Jack, Jack Gleason. Jack Gleason. Okay, so he's for those who haven't seen it, he, he he's the most terrifying ruler, perhaps, of the lot. Um, kind of young murderous he's a teenager um, isn't he? sadistic a, yeah. <laughs> teenager typical teenager channeling john hurt in um in uh, in uh, i claudius he's john lennon go on <laughs> he's not john lennon he's 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 john hurt in, so, in I claudius. john lennon with, with supreme power anyway but he, look, he looks eerily like a portrait bust of caligula and i've always wondered whether yes, that was does. deliberate but also that sort of idea of the of power corrupting you know, of, of of supreme power being incarnated in one ruler and them using it for sexual excess, for sadism. That's very kind of Suetonius, isn't it? Rather than medieval. Well, I, I, again, I think it's kind of there in Enlightenment pornography. Right. Actually, I, you know, it's the Marquis de Sade, really. Yeah, right. so I, th- I, yeah. I, I think that Game of Thrones is clearly, there's all the kind of medieval stuff. And, and it, as we just discussed, maybe Roman stuff as well. There's the modern stuff, and then there's this kind of controlling 18th century sensibility yeah. that, that is mediating both of them. Which sort of sees the medieval world as this sort of cesspit yes. of, of vice. Yes. So, so it's a, it is a kind of pornographer's fantasy in that sense, do you think? Yeah, to a degree, because that's how pornographers in the 18th century certainly saw it. Yeah. Um, yeah. What about this? Um, we've got a few questions about... Um, an event that people always mention, which I think they see, but a lot of people see as the sort of emblematic moment of the entire series, which is this event called the Red Wedding. Oh, so my if, wife Sadie asked about that. Did she? Well, this she is your this, opinion on that. What was the, what was your, was there a source for that? So for those people, those remaining listeners who are not Game of Thrones fans, <laughs> um, the Red Wedding is this moment where this sort of heroic um, young king is sort of Henry V or something, isn't he? Rob Stark, um, who is the sort of king in the North. He, he pitches up at this wedding and you've been invited to believe, you've been led to believe that he's going to be one of the great victors of the whole series because he's such a heroic, such a virtuous and noble sort of figure. And basically the wedding all ends really horribly and, and the Starks all massacred at the wedding. And um, it's shocking because it's a sort of breach of the laws of hospitality and all that. And there, there is a precedent. So, of course, it's it's, it's Scottish hospitality, isn't it, Tom? Um, <laughs> the, um, the, the precedent yes. is an event called the Black Dinner. The Black Dinner. I think it's from the early 15th century. The Earl of Douglas pitches up at the King's Court, King James's Court, and he has served a black bull's head, a severed black bull's head, which is a kind of symbol you're going to die. And then he and I think his son or something like that are taken out and horribly murdered. And it's kind of remembered 
as this. But I suppose the reason it's remembered is because it's so unusual, because this kind of yes. carry-on doesn't, apart from the massacre of Glencoe, so the Scots do have form, but it doesn't, this sort of thing doesn't happen very often. It doesn't, and also it doesn't, it's not a wedding. So a wedding right. in, in the Middle Ages is a sacrament. And to, to desecrate, you know, a, a sacramental event like a wedding is, is incredibly serious. So but people did kill each other in church. I mean, Thomas Beckett died in a church, didn't he? he yeah, but, but butchered but, by his own altar. But again, the exception that proves the rule, um, the, the, the king is whipped through the streets of Canterbury. Thomas right. is, is enshrined as a saint. It's remembered as the most shocking thing imaginable. Um, again, this kind of violence is, it, it doesn't really happen. That's, that's the point of it. But uh, what I would, but Dominic, what I would say also just on the, on, on why Game of Thrones is so addictive and why it's such fun is that I think it does give you everything that a great historical drama does. It, it, it gives you the sense of being in a past period governed by strange customs, governed by strange ways of doing things, family dun- dynamics, uh, all the, all the kind of stuff that you get, you get from a drama about the Wars of the Roses or the Julia Claudian court. But because it's fantasy, you have no idea what's going to happen. Yes, and that's, that's why this has the, imp- I mean, I remember reading it and go being devastated. And there's yeah. a famous footage of people watching it on the on, on the TV adaptation <laughs> and kind of get, pulling pillows over their heads and screaming. Who films and, themselves watching a TV program on the off charts that they're going to be <laughs> go viral? Yeah, um, but you'd never, you'd, but but you'd never get that watching, um, you know, uh, Shakespeare play about Richard the Third. You know, the princes in the tower are going to get it because that's yes. what happened. Yeah, but doesn't actually doesn't the guy who perpetrates it doesn't he suffer a very Shakespearean fate? Isn't he served his own children in a pie or something like that? Is he? Which yeah, is, I can't remember. Yeah, I think he is, and which is very yes. Shakespearean. Um, let's do loads of questions because we should give the listeners the impression that we take them seriously and love them, which we do. <laughs> we do, and, we but do. we should do it by answering their questions rather than ignoring this colossal ream of paper that we've got in front of us. So um, we've got another question here from Paul Duncan. Go on. He was really hogging the stage well, here. Well, he's going to be happy. Yeah, even if no um, one else is. Is there any historical comparison to the Doom of Valyria? So Valyria is this. This old ancient civilization has been destroyed and kind of swallowed up by the waters or something, or the flames something or like that. Yeah. something like, like that. that. So it's clearly Atlantis, isn't it? Or have you got some other yeah. um, something else? I suppose it's a, you know, civilizations do suffer apocalyptic fates. We did the Aztecs um, yeah. just a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Teotihuacan. So that's the city that predates the Aztecs, right? That's yeah. the civilization that came before yeah. and they didn't so I think know. Valyria is kind of Rome. Right. Game of Thrones. It's kind of an ancient empire that was great and then has fallen and its ruins are... Because High Valyrian is a kind of Latin that they yes. speak, isn't it? A grand, prestigious language or something And I think like maybe there's there's an, an element also of the famous um, Anglo-Saxon poem about um, looking at the ruins of Bath. Right. Imagining it as the work of giants and having no idea yeah. who could have built this, these astonishing structures. Um, Gib- so Gibbon may- may- looking over the ruins of Rome. Yeah, although he knew. He did. He knew knew better than anybody. Well, maybe he didn't know, and he had to write the book and find out. Um, Yeah, maybe. uh, Okay, William Jensen, he's written a question about toilets, which I think will appeal to you, um, because you know a lot about people being killed on toilets. He says, is there something... He's talking about the historical versus the mythical style. He says, it's impossible to imagine Tolkien's characters, Saruman or Denethor, being killed on a toilet like Tywin Lannister. Martin is writing in a lower register, which we take as being more realistic. Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it, about registers? and Because yeah. people were killed on toilets in the medieval. Don't you have some good stories about that? Harold Bluetooth, who gave his name to the um, 
the technology. To yeah, yeah, to Bluetooth. Um, he uh, he was having a he was fighting his son, Svein Forkbeard. I think we've already mentioned this on the podcast, haven't we? And yeah, he, it was ten sixty six. Yeah, he got off his ship, um, had a crap. As he was having a crap, Blake shot him in the arse. So actually, Martin is being true to medieval form there, but it's, he's right though that it wouldn't happen in Tolkien. Tolkien is writing. Yeah, a much well, higher... Tolkien. Tolkien there are two registers, aren't there? There's the Hobbits. I mean, I agree yeah. that they don't get shot in the arse, but they kind of, you know, they have drink and yeah, smoke pipes, pipes, and stuff. yeah. Um, and that's um, and then you have the high stuff, and that's that's going back to Shakespeare. So Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two, you've got the high blank yep. verse of you know kings and nobles and so on, and then you've got um, you know all the the, the prose of uh, people in the taverns. Whereas Martin is writing almost entirely in one register, I would say. Yeah, he's writing is, prose that right yeah. through. So there's no sense of the kind of grandeur. And yeah. there's no sense even that the characters really aspire to that, I don't think, by yeah. and large. Um, that they're e- except for Daenerys Targaryen Blair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that comparison. That That's the one thing I shall take from this podcast, from this entire series, actually. Um, Sarah Mandingo says, was there a historical Iron Bank? I like the Iron Bank. So that's this sort of Renaissance type um, institution which exists in Essos. I can't remember which city, which is the Eastern Continent. And they're bankrolling a lot of the war, aren't they? So they're basically Italian banks, aren't they? They're a sort of Italian bank. Yeah. Venetian or Florentine or Genoese. Um, There isn't really, though, because isn't the thing about the the Iron Bank that it, um, it kind of, if you default on your debts, they will come and get you. Yes. So they're a kind of mafia bank. Yes, I suppose so. I suppose Whereas so. medieval kings had, had, you know, they would default and then the banks would go bust. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's, yes, I, I suppose the Florentines didn't have sufficient, you know, if you did borrow money, they, they probably couldn't do, I don't know, could they do much about it? Could they send mercenaries to go and get you or something? Well, I suppose you could sponsor a rival king, couldn't you? Yeah, well, they probably would, wouldn't they? I mean, sort of Henry Tudor. And... Yeah, did that happen with Henry VII? I think it did. Well, I mean, so there was an element. Clearly, must have been bankrolled. I can't remember enough. I think about in Wars it. of the Roses, there was kind of elements of, yeah, financiers taking we, punts on rival kings. We clearly need to know more about yeah, history we need to before, um, <laughs> yeah, before doing these podcasts. Uh, what else? Um, Michael Adam asked a question about the impact of Game of Thrones on Dubrovnik. That's something I know a lot about because I've been have to been Dubrovnik. Uh, City Walls are fantastic. Dubrovnik is a is a beautiful Michael Foote, the former Labour leader, used to go on holiday to Dubrovnik every year, which seems really? a bit repetitive to me. Um, but it's a very nice city, which has been utterly ruined by mass tourism. And actually, Game of Thrones has kind of destroyed the um, the sort of the, the life of the city because it's become this gigantic Game of Thrones theme park. And it and it does look if you want to find a medieval, you know, if you went to Dubrovnik out of season, it is probably as as good a glimpse of a kind of medieval walled city as you'll ever see but not in summer when it's full of game of thrones fans posing for pictures on iron thrones um what, what about uh, hadrian's wall spike Searle asked a question about hadrian's wall didn't martin get the point of hadrian's wall completely wrong it was never meant as an impenetrable barrier perhaps a linear forward operating base and or a customs border tom yeah, well, you must have very that, strong we? views about we, about we talked about that in our episode on walls yes um so we won't go into that i mean i think that um the, uh, the the role that um, Hadrian's Wall plays in the imagination as a kind of outer limit of civilization that that's the kick, and that that is something that you know is there in, in Kipling's poetry. Um, yeah. Again, that's that that is Le- lesser breeze without the law. That kind of yeah, yeah. It's it's mediated. It, this is a conception that is mediated through earlier interpretations of history, recreations of history, literary reworkings of history. Um, 
And I think that's, you know, that's, that, that's the kind of, that, that, that adds resonance to the portrayal of history in Game of Thrones. But also he has, Martin does this not quite nice thing where he has, they, they call the people beyond the wall, the wildlings, don't they? And actually in, in it had Game of Thrones been written a hundred years earlier, you would never see the wildlings as people. You would only ever see them as sort of frightening sort of figures. But in Game of Thrones, you, they are humanized and you are one of the characters goes out north and sort of joins them. And you, you sort of end up, they call themselves the free folk. They're kind of almost like Cossacks or something. See, I'm free not sure booters. about that because, because the parallel for, for, for Kipling and for, um, imperial writers was with the Northwest frontier. Yeah. So they would imagine Roman soldiers in Northern Britain as being analogous to British soldiers on the frontier in, in, uh, of, of British India. But of course, they were, you know, they were fascinated by what lay beyond, by Afghanistan. Well, the the man who would be king. Yeah. Well, yes, which is actually a very, um, a very George R. R. Martin. Yeah, story. that's a, a great story. That would be a brilliant podcast, actually, on Kipling and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, we're just talking about future podcasts instead of doing our own one. Uh, Fordeck has a question which I like a lot. Game of Thrones is usually compared with the Wars of the Roses, but to me, it absolutely screams of the Wars of the Diadokoi. Diadokoi. I don't know how to pronounce that, actually, Tom. Diadoki. Diadoki. Um, now, that would make a series. I agree. So the Diadoki are Alexander's successors, the successors of Alexander the Great. And I actually have a fantasy. I don't know. Fordeck must have an, a, a window into my mind. I have a secret fantasy that one day I'll be reincarnated as a showrunner for HBO. And this is the series I would make. Two series on Alexander the Great, and then I'd go through his successors and end with Cleopatra. How many series would you have? 12 10 okay. but no dragons no but pyramids you'd have yeah, a lot in egypt you'd have yeah. the seleucid empire you'd have the greco-bactrian kingdom yeah you'd have stuff going on in thrace you'd get in the bring in the romans come on tom yeah you, you can be a would you like to be a consultant yeah yeah thanks. for the roman episodes you heard yeah. It great yeah, great great you're in the money <laughs> uh here's one from chet archbold a friend it's, of the it's, show it's it's not a it's not a podcast episode without a question from chet um, Game of Thrones seems to me like the Middle Ages by ways of Nietzsche, were actual medieval nobles as brutal, nihilistic, and utterly fixated on power, generally speaking, as the fictional ones. He well, this is me. Th- yeah, this is me. This is why Chet is great. <laughs> <laughs> Make Chet He's bang on the money great again. One. Yes, um, Chet, I agree with you. We've already done that one. Okay, I think well, we're some, coming somewhere. To an end, what about Warren the Kingmaker? Warren the Kingmaker was very brutal, nihilistic, and fixated on power. He wasn't nihilistic. Well, I mean, he, I suppose he wasn't nihilistic, but he was fixated on power and brutal. Yeah, I mean, he is a Game of Thrones character. Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. I used to love him when I was a child. He was my favourite medieval character. And, of course, Richard, Richard III, as portrayed by, by Shakespeare. As, yes, Ian McKellen or, um, or Laurence Olivier. Yeah. But the whole point is that that's an exaggeration, isn't it? Yes, I suppose so. I suppose so. What about... Um, have we got, have any we got time for one more, you think? Well, here's a good question to end on. Yeah. Johnny Wilson. I don't think that's the same as Jonathan Wilson, our former guest. I don't see him as a man who's... Um, going to be sending in questions about Game of Thrones. Jonathan Wilson, he, very, very stark character. Well, he's very uh, northern. Uh, as yeah, as I think the north. Dan Jackson. I think, so we I can, think we, we I can think divide north our guests <laughs> up into into Starks and Lannisters. <laughs> who are Lannisters? Who are Lannisters? I'm not going to get into that. Um, yeah, Paul Lay, uh, um, who we're having on um, later this week to talk about uh, Cromwell. I, he's a sort of he's a Stark, isn't he? He's yes. a. He, yes. I mean, from the southern reaches of. Listen, Dominic, we're spiraling off here. We are. Okay. okay. Johnny Wilson, got any favourite thrones? Do you have a favourite throne? You must have a favourite throne. Um, the Peacock Throne. Iran, the Shah. Yeah. 
Very good. It's why? Peacock. Why? It's Peacock. That's not a good reason, in my view. My it favorite is. throne is the. Um, oh, well, I've sat on the Iron Throne in Dubrovnik, so that's probably my. I've got so a your favorite throne is a made-up throne. Well, it was plastic, actually. <laughs> and, you, and you're sneering at me for choosing an actual throne. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least I sat on with my peacocks. Uh, I, I've, I've chosen a Disney thro- Disney type throne, which is, of course, what my listeners would expect as a man of the I people. Thought, I thought the game of thro- I thought the Iron Throne was in um, Belfast. I think the truth is there were probably multiple Iron Thrones, and I may well have paid good money. I may well have paid good money to a Croatian um, entrepreneur to sit on a fake Iron Throne, which I think is a nice epitaph for my entire life. (laughs) There was a photo of the Queen looking at On the Iron Throne? No, looking at it. (laughs) I think there should be. I can't believe she didn't sit in it. I mean, she she, she should have. Prince Philip would have. It would have been straight on it. Um, Yeah, Prince Harry. Well, Prince Harry is a very Game of Thrones character. Yeah. Isn't he? So I mean, he, I think he, he definitely ends up dead in Game of Thrones. Doesn't He doesn't win, does he? Yeah. What about William? I think William might survive. William. I think William would come through. Yeah. No, I, I don't know. He'd die at the end of season two. Who would win? Ooh, Princess Beatrice or somebody. Prince Edward. <laughs> Prince Edward's my favourite member of the royal family. Why? Do you know why? Uh, his acting, or his theatrical no. career with Andrew Lloyd Webber? No, I, I went to um, uh, a, a service to commemorate the uh, anniversary of the death of Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians, in Tamworth. Right. That sounds exactly the kind of thing you would do. Yeah, it's great. Uh, there were there was um, the, the local feared had arrived in chain mail. Um, there was the Mercian regiment with the regimental sheep. The regimental um, sheep, wow. I think there were 12 bishops. It was it was a fantastic occasion, um, and after it we went to uh, the castle in Tamworth. Prince Edward was there, um, and he said he was a big fan of Rubicon. Oh, oh my god! So up to that point, I'd had no time for the man, but now <laughs> that is that is galling. Well, I happen I hope, to know. I hope he becomes king. I happen to know <laughs> Prince Andrew is a very big fan of my book, State of Emergency, <laughs> about the Ted Heathiers. <laughs> You don't want Prince Andrew, though, do you? So I've become I've become Prince Edward's banner man. Yeah, wow! And I am so, willing to do what it takes. But you see, to, you've given the game him away. onto the Iron Throne. When anyway. the Civil War breaks out, I will know where you stand, <laughs> and I can use that against you. Um, well, right, on that you note, and Prince Andrew. <laughs> that's anything to boast about. No, no, no. I might have to ditch him. Um, right on that note, I think we should bring the podcast to an end as we've completely lost track of the questions, the subject, our audience. And yeah, life itself. So we will be back, won't we, with Paul Lay talking about uh, Ol- uh, Oliver Cromwell, Cromwell, the protectorate, um, Britain's yes. experiment with republicanism. I think we'll keep that one more on track, probably, than, than we did. And then in the future, for people who like Game of Thrones, gods, all that sort of stuff, the World Cup of Ancient Gods is looming. That's so massive, we're going to be advertising bigger than, that song. Bigger than the Euros. I think it's much bigger than the Euros. For, well, it hasn't been postponed. Unlike the yep. Euros, so we can actually deliver on time and on schedule, and everybody can go. Like, there's no restrictions on. It'll be on Twitter. All are welcome. Please vote if you have a favourite ancient god. Let's hope they've made it to the last sixteen. You know, huge excitement. There's a matter now. Yeah, I think we've had enough. It's the end of Game of Thrones. Goodbye. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.